New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For some, faith is something that is outdated and even dogmatic. Our guest today suggests that faith carries with it the undeniable tension between your search for security and the limits of your ability to know. Faith keeps your spiritual quest relevant and connected to the heart of the human predicament. Today we'll be exploring belief, doubt, certainty, grace, and life as an expression of dependent relationships. We'll be exploring where truth stands in an ever-changing and dynamic world with our guest, Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. Elizabeth Mattis Namgal is a Buddhist teacher and teaches throughout the U.S. and Europe. She's the wife of Tibetan Buddhist master Zingar Kondral and has studied and practiced in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition since 1985. After many years of solitary retreat, Sangha Rinpoche appointed Elizabeth as retreat master at the Longchen Jeme Samden Ling Retreat Center in Southern Colorado. She's the author of The Power of an Open Question and The Logic of Faith, a Buddhist approach to finding certainty beyond belief. Join us for the next hour as we explore the deeper meaning of faith in an ever-changing, dynamic world with our guest, Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so my pleasure. I've just been deeply in broiled in your book because I think it right now I needed it so much. You know, spirit brings us what we need, I think, in the moment we need it. We just ask and and something shows up in just the best ways. And this one for me really showed up in the best way. And I was I was kind of surprised by the title, The Logic of faith. Logic and faith, um, those two words don't often go together. So I, I'd love for you to say something about how you came up with putting those two words together. Yeah. I, well, it was a culmination of a lot of inquiry for me personally. Um, and maybe I can tell, give you that background. Um, when I was very young, I can remember looking back that I had a lot of experiences where I felt very connected and I felt um, very resolved, like there was some, and also that there was something bigger, like I felt a sense of wonder or awe or humility about something. And those were very important experiences to me as a child. 
And I, they had a huge impact on my life. And I always noticed them. And I used to tell my mom about them. I, and once I remember telling my mom, oh, they make me feel very tall for some reason. That's the way I could put words to it then. But I was always drawn towards certain questions like, how could I cultivate this? And why don't I feel this all the time? And what is it? And I don't think this is anything special to me. I think people have these experiences of openness and wonder. And I think children have this a so lot. So it's like many of us, many children just have this natural, I call it spiritual enthusiasm. Yeah, spiritual enthusiasm. That's what it could be. <laughs> I didn't have a name for it then because when you're young, you just, you notice things and you don't feel a need to name it. But we could call it spiritual enthusiasm or I think for myself in this book, I use the term grace. And there's a reason I use that term, and I can get into that. But it has to do with, well, I can say I use it grace because grace has a lot to do with relationship. Like you don't experience grace in a vacuum, but you experience grace in your relationship to the world around you. Right. You're not, yeah. if you're just all by yourself, uh, you're not going to feel grace. But as soon as you contact something, yeah, a sunset could, yeah. or uh, a person or some act some that somebody does, then suddenly you're filled with this feeling. Yeah. It's like a feeling of connection and knowing how you're connected. So it's like you, you begin to understand who you are in the world in a very special way. So that's why I, I decided to call it Grace in this book, you know, just to give it a name so that I could talk about it. But anyways, I, I you know, as I grew into my life, I started to learn from the world around me and I started to learn about shoulds and shouldn'ts and is and isn't. And, you know, you know, you, you're educated by the world and this is not a complaint at all, but, you know, there's some kind of indoctrination that goes on about how you feel and what it is and what you call it. And um, we all get inculturated. Yeah, inculturated. Yeah. Yeah. But I always had a lot of, I guess you could say, faith in this experience. Of grace. You never forgot it. You, it I was, never forgot it. Yeah. And it, at times I continue to experience it quite a bit in my life. And um, it's like it's been a certain focus for me in my life. So my life has been guided by my trust or my faith in that experience. But I also have the experience of feeling very disconnected and unhappy and, you know, suffer. I, I have suffering like everyone else, and I see suffering in the world around me. So the, the kind of just juxtaposition between those two experiences was, became interesting for me. And so my life became a pursuit Kind of a spiritual pursuit, I guess you could say. Um, I was just always interested and curious and attracted to things that felt like perhaps I could understand more about grace from. Um, and when I was in my, I guess my late teens, I became, my, my mother is a Buddhist, but I, I had to learn it on my own. So mm -hmm. I didn't go with what my mother was doing, although I felt that she was very supportive for me in my own path and nurturing in that way. Um, but I went to Nepal in the guise of being an anthropologist, and I met my husband there after a couple of years of being there. Um, and I started and immediately was very clear that he was the one to learn more from. I so knew I needed a teacher. So your husband and also your teacher. And my teacher. Yeah, he became my husband a little bit later. Yes, uh-huh. Um, but... And we were quite young then, but for some reason, I had this experience of grace in my relationship to him. And I trusted it completely. And so 
that was it. And it was a very good decision. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very challenging, it's been a very challenging uh, relationship because he is my teacher and, and I need to be challenged and I appreciate the challenge, but it's been a huge blessing. Um, to have so it kind of has a dual path. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, we have this idea of the spiritual path as just being easy and, you know, you're going to have that experience of grace. But in fact, it's a very gritty, rough experience to have to work with your mind and find out what it means as an experience. And I started to notice in my mind, although there's a lot of, I felt a lot of blessing from the relationship. And, and the teachings I was receiving, a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And I should feel like this, or I should have faith in that. or I, And, and I felt when I was having these experiences that I, I felt disconnected from this experience of grace. And I was asking myself, I think this is a line in the book, you know, where has this child of her fathomless universe gone? like the sense of awe or wonder that I had, I found that it was kind of uh, impeded by all these shoulds and shouldn'ts and um, confusions that I had to face. Do you, it, it, Part of that, do you think, is when we're on that spiritual path and, and we, we're maybe in a group of people, a community, and outwardly, it looks like everybody else is doing so well, and we compare ourselves. I've and most certainly think, uh, had that experience. <laughs> I've had all the experiences that everyone has, you know, of course. And, um, you know, also I've, I've had the experience of, you know, I want to feel inspired or I want to feel connected, and I don't. What do you do with that when your heart, for example, feels like a dry seed? That's a very painful, basic human experience. Or what do you do when somebody in your spiritual Community does something you understand. I mean, I think we're the reason faith is so challenging for all of us is because we look at the church and we see a lot of corruption, for example. It's like, what do you do with that? And how do you work with doubt? And how do you work with the beliefs you have about how you think it all should be? Which is really unfair because life is not working in accord with your preferences. This is where faith gets interesting. So going back to... The idea of faith. Can, can you can you say because I know that your the way that you use it is is different than let's say um, dogma or mm-hmm. you know having having blind faith and and just b- believing in something because it just makes you feel more secure and yeah. but but you're saying faith is a is a dynamic verb I think faithing. Faithing. That's what I arrived faithing. at. This faithing. comes a little bit later in the book, but it's it's really what I arrived at is that faith is not something you have or don't have. Faith is is a way of being in relationship to the world around you. And I want to get back because you asked me the initial question was why the logic of yes. faith. It, and I love that. I'm glad that the publisher let me have this title because it meant a lot to me. So I began to to learn about faith through it an investigative process, which is Buddhist practice. Because to me, and to the Buddha, I think, faith, uh, Buddhism is an inquiry. It's not a dogma. You're not being told to accept principles or beliefs um, because beliefs are very tricky. Once you have a belief, it's, just, it's vulnerable to doubt mm. because the world, belief is kind of an abstract. It's an ideal. 
And then you have the world and the world is very messy and it pushes against your belief. So the belief is always susceptible to doubt. And so we're, we're constantly, what we think of as faith, you know, we're getting disappointed all the time. And then we build walls. And we build walls and we, we um, build resentments and we decide that faith is, we, we don't want to use faith in our vocabulary. Faith is, becomes a bad word. It's associated with dogma, fundamentalism, and disappointment. And people resent the word faith, I think, as a, you know, I'm looking here at my own experience of faith, but what is faith as a cultural narrative? Because a lot of people say they, they're not interested in my book or they don't want to come to my talk because they don't like the word faith. Some people have told me that. And actually someone on my Facebook, I think, when I glimpsed at it the other day, said, uh, said how could you possibly think that logic and faith go together? So I'm, but I also feel like how can you live in a world without faith. Um, I quoted a, a wonderful teacher from our tradition, Tinley Norborumshi, in the book, who said that cows have faith in grass. The fact that we depend on the world in which we live means we have to faith, and we can't get around it. We can't work around faith. Even the greatest skeptics have faith in their ideas. You know, there's, n- there's no way to um, avoid some kind of faith or faithing. Faithing. I'm here with uh, Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. And if you want to know more about her work, uh, she, first of all, has her newest book is called The Logic of Faith, A Buddhist Approach to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, ElizabethMattisNamgal.com, and I'll spell her her middle and last name. Her middle name is M-A-T-T-I-S, and her last name N-A-M-G-Y-E-L, ElizabethMattisNamgal.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Mattis Namgal, and she's the author of The Logic of Faith, A Buddhist Approach to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And Elizabeth, we're talking about faith, the logic of faith, and uh, I, I, if, you, if there's anything that you want to, to add to that, it's such a... a a hot topic, so to speak. Yeah. People, people resist it. And, and can you say something about that? Yeah, I've, had a, I've noticed that there's a lot of resistance toward the word faith. Like for me, the word faith kind of as an experience was very clear. 
You know, I know I have faith, for example, in this experience of grace. But as a word, I sometimes actually felt uncomfortable myself with the word faith, like you should have faith. People say all kinds of things about faith. Faith has many definitions, which is interesting to me. As I started to look into it, I thought I knew what faith was myself. But as you, even if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, you see, you know, dogma, fundamentalism, doctrine, religion, and you see confidence and conviction and spiritual awakening. Those are very different definitions. So I had faith as an experience, but, you know, when there's a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts, like you should feel faith, or you should have faith in the teacher, or you should have faith Mm -hmm. in the spiritual community. But what happens when you're challenged and you have a question and do you have to abdicate your discernment? I mean, these are ideas that come up for people. And I think a lot of people want to do with away with the word faith. Um, and that's why my introduction is called the F word, because I felt a lot of resistance toward faith. And I noticed that a lot of teachers um, actually want to dismiss or reject the word faith. For example, in his book, uh, The End of Faith, Sam Harris, who I like a lot of his work, uh, but uh, you know he associates faith with fundamentalism. And in his new book, which I also um, find interesting, he says, uh, let's use the word spirituality instead. Mm-hmm. And I think that's too easy. I think spirituality can be anything you want it to. Now, that's a big word around, let's say, the New Age culture. It is. You know, I'm not going to subscribe to a religion, but I am study spirituality or, I'm, yeah. you know. But that's pretty broad, isn't it? What do you, what do you have broad. to say about it? Yeah, well, I think spirituality has its place in the English language. And I, I love the word, and it's connected to spirit. And I've probably used it in the first segment of the show once or twice, you know. But I think to replace faith with spirituality is, is too easy. Because spirituality, in a certain way, it's general. And it can be anything you want it to be. And you can create a very comfortable spirituality for yourself. Faith is not so comfortable. You know, if the spirituality is too comfortable, there's no transformation. It doesn't challenge you and you're thinking enough. So, you know, faith has to do with the human condition and the fact that we can't know. You know, if we already knew, we wouldn't need faith. So how do we live in, how do we have faith? How do we live in a world that we can't really pin down? So it places us in our own conundrum and pushes us to think about it. When That's I think, why I like the word faith. When I think of um, when when you were talking about spirituality and it's too easy, uh, it can be. It can be, and and there's something that came up to me just kind of spontaneously. I I thought of Thomas Merton, mm. and I thought about how he grappled all of his life. He belonged to a very strict mm. uh, the Cistercians uh, uh, order of the Catholic Church, and he in all of his writing, he was so prolific. He just he he wrote about all of his doubts and his struggles, but he did that within this path of being a disciple of something, mm-hmm. to being a disciple to some teaching that that caused him to really inquire. Yeah, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and and I guess in spirituality, if there's no discipleship. And in something that's kind of offering a path 
that keeps you inquiring and butting up against yourself doubts and 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 where you built walls and where you concretized things and said, oh, this is the way, the truth and the light. And now I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> a necessary part of spiritual maturation. See, I'm using the word spiritual maturation. Yeah. I think that if you're trying to live around your doubts and hold on to beliefs, you're not real. The practice can't, it will run parallel to your life. It won't intersect with your own ignorance and your own questions. So questioning is deeply important. And I mean, I'm a great ad- admirer of Thomas Merton. And I do think that that's, you have to take joy in that struggle. And that's why I hear the word faith and I don't just dismiss it. I don't think, I think rejecting something that's uncomfortable is way too easy. I think you have to look at it. And as I began to kind of dig in, it just kept opening and opening. And uh, it was, it just, you know, I I learned so much. This book was really my own inquiry. You know, I don't know if I even wrote it for other people. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I'm sharing my inquiry with others, and I always think that's the best you can do. You know, but I I do think that the, the this process of inquiry and that kind of courage to look at the things that make you a little uncomfortable is how you wake up. You know, not to make yourself peaceful. So awake. And that, that sounds like oh, this is really hard. But you you used the word joy in there yeah, too. Joy. You, you mentioned joy. I mean, turning around and okay, our our darkness, our shadow, our our fears are mm-hmm. chasing us and we're feeling overwhelmed by them. And you're saying, hey, turn around and invite them is what I guess yeah. you're giving an invitation to them. And and what will happen when when we do that? What what is your experience when yeah. we actually turn around and embrace that doubt and fear? Yeah, well, it's such a wonderful question, and it's the essential question for to me as a spiritual practitioner. Because then how would, if we're just chasing for our preference, preferred experiences and rejecting everything we don't want, what's so different about the spiritual path from how we usually live? <laughs> there's no transformation in that. And also there's no interest, like there's no juice in that. I always think that the people, uh, the great practitioners are really interested in their experience. You know, they don't turn away from uncomfortable experiences. And actually, for me personally, as a, you know, someone who's been practicing, it's going, it's just this ability to kind of touch something I don't understand that opens up my life. I mean, that's what happened with the word faith. I felt, although I had these bigger experiences, I also felt uncomfortable when I heard the word faith, and I wanted to pursue that. And that's what made this book happen. So, <laughs> so it was it was rather than saying, oh, just pushing it aside and saying, I, I shouldn't think about that. That's, that's not part of my spiritual practice uh, because it's going to lead me to doubt or, or contract. You just sort of uh, felt it. the contraction and just felt like, ooh, that felt uncomfortable. And rather than just ignoring that. Yeah, I felt excited. This is great joy. I think inquiry is, for me, equal with joy. <laughs> because my teacher always has said to me, and this is my experience, I'm, I'm not really that interested in peace, just being peaceful and not, 
you know, stirring up the water. I'm interested in wakefulness, and I want to be big enough for my life. I don't want to live in a small, scared, contracted, puny world. That's what I'm interested in. And I think that's what Thomas Merton and all, I'm not equating myself with these great masters, but all the great uh, uh, spiritual masters of our world are. Joanna Macy is interested. I talked to her the other day. She was just talking about this because here she has continuously walked into very painful experiences. You know, she's thinking about, you know, environmental degradation. She went to Chernobyl. She's always walking in to places where people are hurting or the environment is hurting. She's very joyful. Yeah, she gives voice to to the voiceless. She Uh, most certainly does. does. And Uh, with great joy, she does it. Yes. And she's a joyful person. Yes. And and so I these are my examples, you know, my teacher is like that and his teacher was like that and Thomas Merton was like that and you know Joanna Macy activist Mother Teresa Mother Teresa was Nelson very Nelson Mandela. These are yeah. look at these people. Yes. These are we want to be you know this is these are inspirations for us. And there's a reason and they're humble, incredibly humble. So when you're talking about Thomas Merton was always a disciple, the being a disciple is the much more interesting than being a teacher. <laughs> I think, who you know, teacher is like we think of as someone who knows. Of course, uh, these great teachers are also disciples, and that's why they're so amazing. Yes, yes. You know, to be a disciple means to be in awe of your fathomless universe, which I've been calling grace. Oh, <laughs> I think, beautiful! Yeah. I know that there there's um, a concept that you work with in your life that mm. is just essential to everything yeah. that you talk about. And you talk about how everything leans, everything yeah. leans, L-E-A-N-S. Yeah, everything leans. Oh, what? <laughs> what? Everything leans. Okay, that's very simple. It's Everything leans, but it's huge. It's huge. Tell me about it's how, thing. how everything leans. Okay, I'd be very happy to talk about that. And that has a lot to do with my title because it's kind of the method or the principle I use in this book to understand faithing. So it's kind of the logic part. It opens up the inquiry of faithing. I open it up through this understanding. So let me give you some history on this. Um, so on the dawn of the Buddha's awakening, And I want to say this is a Buddhist principle, but like I've been saying, you don't have to be Buddhist to be Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) The Buddha wasn't Buddhist. And what we're talking about here is just a way of understanding reality that you can understand through your direct perception. And it's very simple in a certain way. So uh, this is what the Buddha discovered at the dawn of his awakening. He said something very curious. He had an insight. And this insight is the essence of all his teachings. So let me try it on the radio. Let's see if I can um, make this clear. He said, this being, B-E-I-N-G, this is in the sutras, this being that becomes from the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that becomes not. From the cessation of this, that ceases. Now, I realize this sounds cryptic, but it's actually really simple, and I'm going to try to explain it. But what this means is that everything arises due to causes and conditions. Everything is dependent on other things to arise, express itself, and fall away. So, you know, 
if there are causes and conditions, for example, for suffering to arise, it will arise. And when those causes and conditions cease, suffering will cease. If you create the causes for happiness to arise, you know, happiness will arise. So it's, you know, in a way, initially this was this, this uh, passage was understood as a way to watch your conduct very carefully. Yes. And yeah. I, I know that this is a bigger subject, so I'm going to just remind our listeners where we are right now, and we'll be right back with it. And I want to remind us all that we are here with uh, Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. She's the author of The Logic of Faith, A Buddhist Approach to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Mattis Namgel. And Elizabeth, you just repeated a sutra from the Buddha in his awakening, and it's like, oh my, what? What do we do with that? It's it seems so complex, but you say it's simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll try to I'll try to explain that because it's it's a very subtle idea, but it's very much a part of our experience. So when we begin to understand it, it helps us understand our situation and look at the world in, a, in our mind in a very realistic way. So when you say everything arises, expresses itself, and, and kind of dissolves or changes um, based on causes and conditions, you know, you might start to examine the world of relationship. Really what it's talking about is this world of relationship and how everything uh, uh, affects and influences and bumps against each other and changes, like the world is dynamic and expressive and not one thing. This is a very, very deep principle um, that the Buddha called and this is a Sanskrit word, pratityat samudpada. And I'm going to translate this for you into English uh, in a way that uh, you can understand. Um, what it's in the uh, Tibetan tradition or the Indian tradition, it's often, or when, we're, when translators trans from the, translate from the Sanskrit, they often translate it as dependent arising or dependent origination. Those are the two most common ones. Joanna Macy, I like her translation, which is mutual causality. Like everything is is kind of bumping up against everything else and causing it to happen. It's like this continued genesis of appearance and experience. It's a way of talking about the genesis of appearance, which is happening all the time in a continuous way. You know, because Buddhism is a non-theistic tradition, there's not one thing creating everything. Because if you look at that one thing in order to create the world in which we live, it would have to be participating in the nature of mutual causality, relationship, which would make it of the same nature as everything else. So if you want to talk about like what is the genesis of anything, it's always cause and effect, a mutual causality, dependent origination. So what another way to talk about this, I think, is to say it all depends. 
Okay. Everything depends on other things. So if we keep that in our mind and hearts as we go through our day and we start getting fearful or doubtful or or wondering, oh, and start going towards how we prefer things to be. We're in the grocery store and it's not working out. Somebody bumps into us or someone cuts in line or whatever it is. Ah, it all depends. You know, it just just... If you have that mantra ready at your lips, oh, it's so uh, helpful. It is so helpful. Yeah, you you know what I love the most about it, Justine, is it it shows you that, for example, okay, this is a very silly example, but this morning I, I looked in the mirror to get ready to come over here, and my hair was quite curl, like wavy, and I thought, wow, it's because of the humidity. You know, I like California. I come from Colorado. It's bone dry there. So my hair is really straight. So if someone were to ask me, like, do you have, what kind of hair do you have? I, I say, well, it all depends on the <laughs> right. weather. There it all go. depends on the circumstances. Yeah. You know, like, so of course, that's a very kind of silly well, we example. We would say mundane, but, but it, it does illustrate. I mean, it, it illustrates something very interesting. Um, I was thinking about it recently because, you know, when we watch the news too much, we might get a little uptight <laughs> these days. And, you know, there's a lot about racism and uh, uh, just really painful things, right, uh, sexism right, and right. different things happening. And and so sometimes when I, I get kind of down on the hearing about those things get me down, I watch a lot of stand-up comedy. So I have a tendency, oh, you do too. <laughs> Anyways, I, so I do you like Dave Chappelle? I love Dave Chappelle. I love Dave Chappelle. I love Dave Chappelle. So, so like, yeah, isn't he great? Oh, he's fabulous. So he's fabulous. He can take something that we consider very politically incorrect, like you should never say it. But within the context of stand-up comedy, he can say anything he wants. And it's, and actually, it evokes laughter and freedom. Like, we can see the drama. Now, when we leave that particular context and we go on the bus or the subway, we better not repeat it. No. <laughs> so, so, it all depends the, on the context. It depends on the context. Yeah. Right. And so... In our tradition, and this is a tradition that dates back to what the Buddha says, you know, the Buddha is basically saying it all depends and everything leans. Everything, it all, everything is influencing everything else. But in, in the second century, because those teachings on dependent arising kind of went underground. And in the second century, a great master named Nagarjuna came into the scene, I guess you can say, and he started to talk about this again. Pratichat Samudpada, or Dependent Arising. And he started to look at things in a very interesting way. He said, try to see if you can find anything singular that is not made of parts. Try to find something that is permanent and try to find something that does not exist in the nature of relationship and it is not influenced by other things that is autonomous or independent from the world of relationship. So at one time we thought uh, the atom... That was it. It was yeah. a singular thing. All things mm -hmm. are based on the atom. Yeah. Well, it turns out that's not true. Like the Greek word atom means it can't be broken. In other words, it's not made of parts, but whole unto itself. But it ends up that this idea of atom is just like a map. Like I often talk about the, the way thoughts work. Are there maps? We every, think of everything nominally like a cup of tea or a book. But 
it's just a map, not the territory. Because if you start to open a book and think about the book and what does it say, it opens up this whole other world. So you can't really say the book is a singular thing. It, it, first of all, it, it's made of parts. It has many pages. It's full of words. The words have meaning. The meaning is different to every, everyone who reads them. It depends on who <laughs> reads them and how they read it and so forth. So you might say that the, the atom, the term atom is just a map, but it has territory because what happens when we broke open the atom, we had gluons and protons and, you know, strings and quarks. And if you look at any one of those, those are ideas, but if you walk the territory of a string, if you ask any scientist about a string or a quark, they'll have page, you can find pages and pages and pages of things, description of what that means and who discovered it. And it's right, this whole story right. opens. It's like an interview. We started with the logic of faith. It's the title of a book. And look, it's opening up into <laughs> yeah. world of, ex, you know, universes of experience that could keep going in, Infinite, you know. Well, Elizabeth, this, this reminds me of how there's a natural human tendency mm-hmm. to search for that singular mm-hmm. creative power in the universe. What created all of this? And 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 it must be. It's easy to kind of hold it as this singular thing that is outside of all of this complexity that mm. started it all. I, yeah, we want to know. Yeah, we want to <laughs> know. Especially in contemporary culture. I think indigenous cultures are much more skilled at being able to hold a lot without shutting down their intelligence. And I, I think in this book, The Logic of Faith, I'm making an argument that that's a very, very limited way of knowing. And it's not in accord with the nature of reality. If I want to know what kind of hair I have, it all depends. So how could I possibly, you know, identify a singular thing that's free from the elements, the, the, the humidity or the dryness that I could call my hair? Or if I look at myself or one looks at oneself, it's like, who are we? Well, we're a mother in relationship to our son. We're a daughter in relationship to our parents. We are uh, a citizen of the United States of America or a citizen of the great nature of contingency. Or uh, when we go to the doctor, we're a patient and so on. I mean, it's we are open dimensional. We are not one dimensional. Open dimensional. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that a good means way. fathomless. We are right. fathomless. We will never be able to find who we are. But it doesn't have to be confusing. That actually gives us more information how to be. This is what I, this is what I talk about quite a, at length here. Knowing is this kind of knowing that we think can capture truth is highly overrated. I say that again. Why? This kind of knowing capturing truth is highly overrated. It feels so comfortable, yeah. though. At least for a moment, I yeah. guess uh, it feels so comfortable when we go. Oh, I mean, there have been times in my life where I said, ah. Oh, I got it. Yeah. I understand it all now. I was, it's just like this moment of clarity. Yeah. But then I look back over my life and I can see, ah. You you talk about like being at a dinner party with that person who, who's <laughs> a knower. knower. <laughs> I've been that knower. Me too. Oh, that, that just starts to spout off whatever it is and this is the way it is. Yeah, and it's torture to sit across from such a person. You know, and I don't appreciate that part of 
other people's mind. And I don't appreciate that part of my mind. I say, I always say that, you know, when I'm a knower, uh, I wake up in the morning and I feel like I've had a hangover. Like, what did yeah, I, me what, too. where was I coming from? Me too. Yeah. I say that that knower mind is the worst, myself at my worst. Mm-hmm. And when I think I know someone in a definitive way, it doesn't mean you can't read patterns. See, the, the, I, I want to explain this better. Because discernment is incredibly important. We have to be able to have discernment and agency and clarity. But actually, knowing the mind shutting down around an object impedes your intelligence. That's when we grasp it and we concretize it and make it into our, it starts to be a dogma and then we yeah. become a fundamentalist and we become and this is what i call fundamentalism which we can all find with within ourselves um, so the most intelligent mind i've found in the mind that's actually better at navigating and being savvy in the world is the mind that keeps that's dynamic and taking in information and sophisticated enough to hold many different um, experiences. So it's like saying, yes, and this, yes. Yeah, I see And that. this, oh, yes. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is that it's a big yes. So like all of this polarization that's going on, at least in the U.S. right mm-hmm. today and other parts of the world. At the same time, if you just do that, you just get lost in vagueness. They'll be like, oh, yes, yes, yes. But actually, we need to be clear on what our intention is. You know, we need to be clear on what is meaningful to us. We have to be clear on what is beneficial for us. So, like, if we just say, like, okay, say with food, yes, okay, the donut is great, and the, yeah, you know, right. this kind of thing. You know, we have to be clear on also cause and effect, because <sighs> every if everything leans, it means we can't know anything in a determinate way, but it also means that everything we do is of the is important. Everything matters. It means two things at once, kind of. So there we go. There we go. Let's talk more about that. Yeah, this in, is in just very a moment. important. That's in very important. I'm here with Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. She's the author of The Logic of Faith. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, elizabethmattisnamgal.com. And she spells her, last, her middle name and last name, M-A-T-T-I-S, last name, N A M G Y E L, Elizabeth Mattis Namgal.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Tom, so you're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you. 
I'm here with Elizabeth Mattis Namgal, and she's the author of The Logic of Faith, A Buddhist Approach to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And Elizabeth, we're talking about that idea of including everything, but having discernment. We want to include the bigger picture, and then again, we're beholden to what we can discern as good and right for Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. What can you say about that? Yeah, so let me give some really concrete examples. So oftentimes, you know, say we look at another person and we think we know who they are. And that's a singularization or a reification of that person. And when we reify another person, a lot of negative emotions come. And what this, you know, what we understand if we really look at that, because we think we know, there's, this is the rightness that we've been talking about. So there's this kind of, uh, uh, yeah, reification of the person, but it's not in accord with the way they are because no one is singularly anything. We, we, we are part of the great nature of infinite contingency and we're changing all the time and we are as we are because of many causes and conditions that arise. So, for example, you know, when uh, soldiers go into the military, they're trained to reify or objectify the enemy. Because if you go out into a war zone and you think, oh, it's somebody's son. Oh, it's somebody's brother. Oh, you know, it's somebody's father. And they are all those and things. And they are all those things. You begin to, that, to see someone in relationship is the opposite of reification. And relationship is what we're talking and then about here. You can't here. be a, a killer then, if you, yeah, most likely you're exactly. You're... And that's how aggression comes from reification. So I always say the most respect you could ever pay to anyone is to not decide you know who they are. However, it's very important. It's not to say you dismiss. It does that does not immobilize your intelligence. You still know you're in a war zone. You still have to protect yourself. You still have to, you know, figure out what you need to do. Just because you see in this bigger way, it changes the atmosphere of your mind and you're not reactive. You still need to navigate and be savvy about what's going on. Another example would be like with attachment. For example, you know, people who are work in advertising know if they present an object to you in a very delightful way, you'll get attached to it. But if they start saying like this car that we're presenting that's, you know, hugging the corners and the light is glimmering just so on it, oh, the dashboard's going to crack and you're going to get parking tickets and insurance (laughs) is high. And reminding you of all these different aspects of the car, you might still buy the car, but you'll have them less grasping. You'll be more savvy about the object. We have this idea that just because you see realistically the nature of the object, all of a sudden you're going to just get lost in this kind of vague open space. But in fact, it opens up your ability to be discerning and much more insightful and savvy about the object. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I do. So discernment, you use your ability to, you're, you're curious about things. Mm-hmm. You say, you keep that quality of curiosity mm-hmm. and, and you have to be discerning with what you know to be 
true for yourself? What I, I don't know. Well, I, it's not, not a stat- it's well. not a, it's not a static thing. It's a relationship thing. So it's moving. So every moment, it's it's a movement. Yeah, it sounds very complicated, but I think we do it a lot of the time. Like you're moving through the world and you're open and you're looking and you're listening and and you're responding. When you're not reifying, you're not caught up in your own ignorance. And so you can respond to life as you move through the world. It's not, we have this. So I'm just saying, just here's just a little example. Um, There was a person in somewhere in Texas who was planting all these bombs mm. in, in these surprising ways that and hurt some people. And he was finally found and caught, and he actually died. But uh, there was a warning given mm-hmm. to the people in Texas. Uh, they, they put out a warning saying, uh, do not just walk looking at your cell phone and take your earbuds Pay attention. out. And pay attention. And that was the warning that came out. They said, pay attention. So this is a little bit of what you're talking about. That Exactly. Pay attention to the world around you. (laughs) This is exactly because you are a citizen of the great nature of dependent relationships. And everything you do matters. Pay attention what you eat. Pay attention. Like, wake up. (laughs) <laughs> Pay attention to, to, to the effect you're making in the world. Um, yeah. if, if we burst out and we react in anger, well, yeah, that just reminds me of karma. Okay. Well, it is. You know, so how does karma work? We use yeah. that word easily. but Yeah, that's it, another word to examine. Mm. So karma means activity. And if you want to translate the word karma, it simply means activity. It's neutral. It's not like, oh, it's his karma like a punishment Ah. or a reward system. It simply is the activity of pratitya samudpada or cause and effect. That's what karma is according to the Buddhist understanding. Um, Karma is simply the activity of cause and effect. The movement, the dynamic energy of cause and effect. So if we're reactive, if we're in our reactive mind, mm-hmm. then that has its effect. Yeah, like we're holding on to the map, but we're not walking the territory. Right. You know, we're holding to, on to our ideals or we're holding on to our principles, but actually life is moving and responding to us and we're getting all this feedback and, you know, we're here to create good. You know, this is why what we call the bodhisattva path or the path of... Um, the path of the bodhisattva that we talk about or awakening the mind, the path of awakening the mind is so service-oriented, serving beings. Because on one hand, we can't fix the world in which we live because it's dynamic, not because it's broken, but because everything leans. The bodhisattva knows the world is not a fixable place. Like you can't bring it to some kind of state of equilibrium. And in any ways, the world is not a thing. The world is like, that's like a map again. But if you walk the territory of the world, you encounter life. I, I remember being, <laughs> being on a bus uh, in in uh, northern India. We were just mm-hmm. leaving Dharamsala, and I was on a bus, and I was talking to a Buddhist teacher. Mm-hmm. And this was quite a few years ago. And, you know, I was talking about world change and what I was about and really helping to make the world a better place for more yeah. well-being, being for more people. And and I remember him saying, 
well, that will never come to fruition. Mm, but you have to try with all your might. Oh my God. No, that that's, so not, that's not what I'm saying. That's, Please that's don't. So, <laughs> yeah, that was so depressing for me that I, I, I was so attached to, yes, there would be some final outcome that, oh, that it's see, yeah. all going to work out. And if enough of us work hard mm-hmm. enough toward that well-being and goodness, that it'll all work out. Yeah, but, you know, we don't, we have this idea of, evolution that it's going to work in a, a linear direction. Yes. But in fact, if everything's leaning, it's nothing. We never know what's going to happen. It's not like one thing happens and then another thing happens. We all even have an idea of what we want to happen that's different. You know, so... But we do. It's it's okay. It's it's a good thing to work with something that that is contributing to well-being and 100%. Health. And that's why... The view is that we can't fix it because it's dynamic. That's realistic. However, what are we going to do with our life? First of all, if we want happiness and joy and wakefulness, there's no way to do that other than serving others and responding to the world around us. And that's why I always talk about the Bodhisattva path is, um, you know, one who burns with love in a world they can't fix. Because what else is there to do with your life? And that's why we live in this world of relationship. And we need others to wake up. And we need to contribute to that. Well, I think of Mother Teresa. She wasn't trying to cure all these no, people. she was responding. But she was responding with love. And she was there with people to have a good death. You know, not exactly. that she was trying to fix it, but she was there exactly. in love. She was in love. And she was burning with love. She was a good example of someone who burned with love. And so, you know, when we say burning with love, like, you know, we think in terms of activism. I mean, I'm not saying activism isn't amazing. But for the Bodhisattva, activism is, you know, you're in the lane at this, you're going to the swimming pool and it's rush hour and everybody's trying to get a swim lane. And you're in the pool and you're kind of enjoying being by yourself. And somebody asks you if they can join you in your lane. And you look at them and you say, come on in, of course. And they all of a sudden stop because they're not used to that kind of warmth. Yeah. And then all for hours it sustains you because you extended love and they had somebody extend generosity to them. That's the level. I mean, if you want to think how to bring spirituality into my life, that's how to do it. Like constant warmth, constant care, you know, because everything you do matters. We have a tremendous responsibility in this as citizens of the great nature of dependent arising or whatever you want to call it, pratitya samudpada, or it all depends or whatever. Oh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. You, we, we just could, this subject is so big. Yeah. And I think we've, we've just kind of touched lightly, and I hope we've left our, uh, our, our <laughs> listeners with something. I know I'm inspired. Thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions today. Thank you, Justine. Thank you so much. So good to see you. I've been here with Elizabeth Mattis Namgal. She is the author of The Logic of Faith, A Buddhist Approach to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, elizabethmattisnamgal.com. And she spells her middle name M-A-T-T-I-S and her last name N-A-M-G-Y-E-L, Elizabeth 
mantisnamgal.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3639. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.